For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. This episode is brought to you by MJ.com and their brand new medical platform that they're rolling out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Have you visited MJ.com? MJ.com is the most trusted information source for all things cannabis. Whether you're a medical marijuana patient looking to find the right doctor or a consumer looking for exclusive savings at your favorite dispensary, MJ.com can bring you your favorite products right to your front door. Or maybe you're just a lover of the cannabis culture looking for the best original articles, interviews, podcasts, and educational information. MJ.com is the number one place to find everything you need. Visit MJ.com today. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. You're here because you know that cannabis is an incredible, beautiful, powerful medicine, and you want to know more about its possibilities. So week after week, I'm bringing you different physicians, clinicians, researchers, cultivators, lab testers. If they are an innovator in this space, I want to talk to them and bring them to you, my wonderful listeners. And speaking of y'all, if you haven't had a chance yet, head over to Apple or Stitcher and give the show a rating. Let me know what you think. You can email me, Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com. Tell me what you think of the show. Tell me what you think of the guests. If you have any ideas for new guests to have on, please let me know. I'm always wanting to hear what you have to say so I can bring you week after week the very, very best, including this week with Dr. Sean Opie, who runs a lab testing facility for cannabis up in Michigan. We get really geeky down into the details of all sorts of things, and I had a lot of fun with it. I hope you all enjoy it too. You'll definitely learn a lot from Dr. Opie. So please enjoy. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Sean Opie. Dr. Opie is a cannabis ninja, science geek, and serial entrepreneur. Sean has co founded and operated five laboratories in multiple verticals, including research and development, clinical diagnostics, and cannabis safety testing. He is currently the managing partner of E4 Bioscience, a boutique consulting firm that helps investors and lab teams fund, design, build, operate, and accredit cannabis safety testing laboratories. Dr. Opie, welcome to the show. Hey, Matthew. Thank you very, very much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be on the show. Great. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. All previous conversations have gotten very excited to see how deep of a dive and how geeky we can get on this. 
Right. Well, I'm just excited because I've listened to a number of your podcasts. They're outstanding. And I just hope that I can uh, bring myself to the quality of conversation that some of your other guests have had. It's uh it's it's been a it's been a great listening experience and I encourage other listeners to to check more out if this is your first one. Oh uh, great. Well thank you. I definitely appreciate that. I'm sure you're not gonna let anybody down with this. So without further ado, let's dive a little bit into your background and let me know how you got into lab testing in the first place and then how it came to be that you switched over into the cannabis world. Yeah, great. So um, my old man is a retired cardiac surgeon, and I always thought that I wanted to be a doctor. And sometime in college, when I was taking the standard pre-med program, I did a really neat internship. And what I realized is that medicine really wasn't my calling. There are a variety of reasons for it, but I just realized that it wasn't my calling. And I'm, I'm be honest with you, I'm very happy that I learned that early in my pre-professional career because it could have been a it could have been a horrible choice for me to, to actually become a physician. But I knew that I liked solving problems. I knew that I liked data. And I thought that maybe I should try the research track. So after graduating, I took a year off, something I recommend every college student to do, went rock climbing. It was a climbing guide. It was the best, one of the best years of my life, but reapplied to graduate school and ended up getting a PhD in, in, in the biologic biomedical sciences. From there, I had a very interesting opportunity to help set up a research and development lab for the purpose of injecting st human stem cells back into human hearts as an experimental procedure. And I was blown away by the fusion of medicine and research and business all at the same time. And it, it was just such an exciting three and a half, almost four years. We did some wonderful things. But importantly, it gave me the first opportunity to build a lab from the ground up and operate a lab from the ground up. So it's a neat exposure. I then went and decided that I would I needed some management training. I realized out of out of my you know five or six years from grad school that I didn't know what high functioning managers did or I, I don't know how they did that. So I joined a clinical research program at a very large hospital organization and immersed myself in all of the training classes that they provided their managers. It was a great time. I learned a tremendous amount. But I got bored because I wasn't getting exposure to the data and to the science that I really enjoyed. About that time, a buddy of mine from a long time past, past called and said, Sean, we need to start up a clinical diagnostics laboratory company, specifically a genetic testing company, like last week. And I thought about it for a bit, and I spoke with my wife. And she surprisingly agreed to allow me to quit my well-paying job with stable health care and a 401k uh, to actually tap into that 401k to borrow some money so that we could build our first clinical diagnostics laboratory. We got a little lucky um, and, and had a wonderful first, uh, first few years. And along the way, what we decided is that we needed to reorganize a little bit 
And we decided that it would be easier to sell a laboratory and build a new one rather than bolt something else on to the first one. We ended up doing that a couple times. And each time we built a new lab, we got better at it. And the last one, we had almost 120 employees. So it was a fairly serious laboratory. We processed 350,000 clinical specimens annually. And it, it, it got overwhelming. Um, we create, I, I tell people we created a dragon. Now, dragons are awesome pets. But if you don't feed dragons, they get very, very angry and they breathe fire. Lots of it. So... Along the way, we happened to be in California, and we knew that California was going to legalize adult use or recreational marijuana. And we realized that the infrastructure that our clinical diagnostics laboratory was perfectly tailored for a cannabis compliance testing laboratory. So in 2017, we started to ask the question, could we make a legitimate transition from cannabis, from clinical into cannabis? Now, it turns out that we ran out of runway and it didn't happen, but I never stopped thinking about that opportunity. And so I rekindled my consulting firm, E4 Bioscience, positioned it as a cannabis laboratory testing company because we did screen for drugs of abuse using the kinds of technologies that are, are, are in most cannabis labs. And I was quickly introduced to some investors that wanted to build a cannabis lab. And I took advantage of that. And uh, ever since then, I've been 100% involved in cannabis safety laboratory testing. It's been a wild ride. Um, it has its ups and downs like everything else. But uh, if you're interested in analytical laboratory testing, I think that cannabis is a really neat, it is a great, it's a really neat place to be. A lot of opportunities. Yeah, so it seems. And really the lab testers are the gatekeepers of medicine at this point because you're the ones that say, this is not going to fly for somebody and this is going to be okay for actual human consumption. So what, what's the process? Can you take us through the journey of testing cannabis and, and what it is that you're doing and what the labs are testing for? Yeah, that's a great question. And I may, I may divide that into two questions. Uh, what do labs do and why do we do it? So starting with the low-hanging fruit, why do we test? It's quite simple. We, we test for human safety. We are trying to identify different contaminants that may or may not be most of the time, quite frankly, but we're seeking contaminants in cannabis or cannabis products that are known to have harmful effects on human health. So you're right. We are this kind of the gatekeeper and legally we are the gatekeeper because in many states, if if a, if a sample doesn't pass the safety compliance or the, or the compliance testing, it can't, the, the product can't make it onto the shelves. So we do play a very important role um, as, as part of the supply chain, but we're not growing, extracting, producing, or selling. We're just checking to make sure that everything is safe. So again, we do it for human safety. That's, I roll it up into two words. Now, what do we do? Well, wow. 
laboratory testing is a pretty wide subject, but at its simplest, the contam- we test for contaminants. And sometimes it's hard to remember them all when you're on the spot. But generally speaking, I think everybody is familiar with potency testing. So looking for the concentration of THC, possibly CBD in a sample or, or other cannabinoids. We then, but we also look for residual solvents, chemical residues. Most people would think of those as pesticides um, to see if there are heavy metals, if there are microbial contaminants. So things like E. coli, salmonella, and aspergillus. And there's, there's, there's some other, I don't call them safety tests per se, and that probably irritates some people, but we look at moisture content, water activity, and also foreign matter. Those are most of the tests that most of the states that have legalized or, or have a medical use expect. And now, can I interject for just a second here? What about mycotoxins? Because I know as a cultivator, that was always a huge issue for that we always had to deal with, and they can be pretty toxic for human consumption. Absolutely. So that's the alpha toxin and and the ochratoxins that generally come from the aspergillus species. Those are required in some in some states and. I think one of the things that we'll probably get into is the current state of regulation for safety testing, because like every other sector in in cannabis, I think it's fair to say that the expectations are not uniform across all the states. So, so the list that I just provided is going to be different depending on where you are. But yes, mycotoxins are also, I said I might not get them all, mycotoxins are, off, are often required. And there's some controversy, if there is such a thing in, in lab testing, about whether it is necessary to test for the presence of the pathogen that creates these, these mycotoxins, or whether it's more appropriate to test for the mycotoxin itself, or as in California is a great example, it's required to test for both. That seems like the most thorough way to go about doing it. It eliminates the argument. It it is. And interestingly, I tell people, I'm actually based in Michigan right now. I'm not in California, but I, whenever I talk to prospects or clients, one of the recommendations that I suggest is that they look very carefully about trying to meet the California safety testing requirements. I think if you can meet California requirements, there is no other state that has testing requirements as rigorous as California. And I I know that some people are going to complain that they're burdensome and expensive and it's unnecessary. They are expensive. That is true. Because lab testing is very, very complicated and requires expensive, uh, a lot of expensive equipment and highly trained people. But I think that if you if you get over the expense side of it, um, it's very hard to argue that they're unnecessary and or burdensome. I really think that again, the whole idea why do we do this? It's for human safety, and it's a very hard to argue that human safety isn't or shouldn't be important. Absolutely. And one of the things that's a little bit different about California and then the other 10 states, including Michigan, where they have adult use laws on the books, and is that 
that might be in some people's minds that with the adult use, it's not technically medicine anymore. Maybe you don't have to have such stringent requirements around it, which I completely and wholeheartedly disagree with. But in all the other states, and including those states with adult use, there are medical laws on the books, and there are this is a medicine. This is something that is not only for human consumption, it's for human health and well-being and, and healing. So it becomes even more important. I would, I would say that we should have more rules. We should have more procedures. I think that wherever we are, it probably doesn't even come close to what is actually necessary. So, so that's a great point. And one of the arguments in favor of expanding testing requirements or perhaps modifying testing requirements is the vitamin E acetate debacle that happened in late 2019. Now, I know that you've had a guest on the show previously that's already talked about vitamin E acetate. So I won't go into I won't go into depth on it, but just to just to highlight a few points here, vitamin E acetate is an as a it's an FDA approved additive that is allowed to be used in most in, in in many many topical again topical something you rub into your skin topical cosmetics. Um, there's an argument that it's that it's actually beneficial for the skin, so one could view it as a almost like a FDA-approved beneficial supplement. What's interesting about vitamin E acetate, though, is when it is burned and then inhaled, it goes from a, a positively acting uh, skin topical to something that is incredibly toxic to lung tissue. And as a result of vitamin E acetate being put into concentrates to effectively reduce the concentration of THC while maintaining the same viscosity of the concentrate. I think the last numbers that I saw were released in, that I saw were released in April of 2020 by the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I think there were just shy of 3,000 hospitalizations. And I, again, I think it's 90 or so deaths. So how come people died and were hospitalized when all of this testing is supposed to be in place? I think that's a fair question. Well, two words, the the black market. Well, that, but, but it's also, it's, so there are now examples of vitamin E acetate showing up in the legal market as well. And the reason that people, the reason that, that it wasn't detected is because with all that list that I, I reeled off to you previously, vitamin E acetate was not on the list of things to look for. And so one of the neat things about science or laboratory testing, life in general, you, you, you only get information on items that you are seeking information on. If you don't know to look for vitamin E acetate, you won't find it because it's, it's just not on your list. So one of the improvements that I can see coming down the road for specifically medical cannabis, it it would certainly help recreational or adult use, but certainly medical cannabis is a different kind of testing that rather, we, we still continue to look for all the known contaminants that we do not want, but there's an additional technology that allows you to look for, I'm going to call them unknowns and things that you might be curious about, and only after you identify uh, something 
would you then go and investigate, excuse me, go and investigate that a little closer? So, you know, think about this in terms of a, of a concentrate, because I suspect that that's the, or an extract. I think that that's the easiest way to look at it. For the most part, that really should be pick your favorite cannabinoid and then some very simple oil that's immersed in, and that's it. So from a laboratory perspective, you should really only see a couple things when you're testing. But if you use new technology, it's actually old technology, but if you use an additional technology and you start to see extra things that are, even though you don't know what they are, now that you may see three or four items when you were really only expecting a couple, that should raise a flag. And the laboratory should be directed to investigate what that is and identify what it is, and then try to help people understand whether that could be harmful or not. Because something may, be, something may not be identified, but may be safe. And we should allow that product to continue to go to market. It's if that unknown has a potential safety risk associated with it, that's when we should stop and say, well, let's take a little closer look at this. And we'll probably get into this a little ways down the road, but it's complicated testing. It's expensive testing. And I think that that is the kind of requirement that would only happen at the federal level where you might have a centralized lab operated by a government body. And that could be at the state level or at the national level, but one laboratory that picks, I'm going to say samples of samples. You know, it's not possible to test everything. So you pick samples and just test a few things, but to pick a few of those and have have that centralized lab ask, is there anything else in here that we should be paying attention to? Um, so yeah, I think that's a future opportunity for laboratory testing. It's, it's not, it's, I mean, it may be happening at some in select university testing sites, um, not for safety and compliance, but just for research purposes. But I would really like to see that expanded so that specifically for medical cannabis, where people can be 100% sure of what they are consuming. Yeah, Uh, necessary. I I believe in product labels. Let's have good labels. Yes. Yes, I feel like the labs should be able to provide that. And I'm... I know some people with they, they uh, put a QR code on their product, which will bring up all the labs, the lab work, and that's a really good step in the right direction. But labeling, I think, is even more necessary. So the QR code on products is something that I have been advocating for a couple years, whether it be, it, it doesn't matter what the product is. I think that when somebody walks into a retail facility, we're actually possibly getting a little ahead of myself here because I really wanted to spend some time in this one. I would love it if patients would pull out their smartphone and take a picture of a QR code on any product for sale and download or be able to view a certificate of analysis, or we'll call it a product label, but we'll talk, we'll talk about a certificate of analysis before, before we end, before we end the show. And not only have access to that, which I think the QR code facilitates, but also understand what it means. And 
I think that food labeling is a good example of this because if you rewind the clock 15, 20 years ago, I, I don't think very many people were interested in food labels. Perhaps your, perhaps maybe your your uh, health enthusiasts were were very concerned about it. But now when I go into the grocery store, it's uncommon to see anybody pick up a canned good or a box good and not look at the label. And specifically for people, if, if somebody is into organic food, like my wife, we won't get products that have additives in them. And the only way you'd know that is by looking closely at the label. I don't understand why it shouldn't be identical for cannabis. 100% agreed. Okay, so let's let, that's further down the line, right? So let's let's start at the beginning. So maybe if we could just kind of go through what the process would be like. And so specifically, um, I, you sent me a couple blue papers. I became a, a, tri- a member of your tribe of experts, which is a really cool thing. So I want to hear about that. Um, let's just start there then. Let, tell me about this tribe of experts that you got. So my tribe, thank you very much for asking about that, by the way. My tribe of experts is my way of trying to help educate the cannabis community about laboratory testing. Remember, I'm a science geek at heart. And one of the things I think it's incumbent upon people that, that claim to be geeks is to help educate. And that means writing information down and getting it into people's hands in a way that is digestible. I mean, I can write technical papers, but most people aren't going to read those. And so I try to create documents that I think are needed in the cannabis community so that we can all use a common language. And for people who are not, say, in laboratory testing, have a better understanding of what a laboratory needs and what actually happens in the laboratory. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to be able to meet with growers, cultivators, uh, processors, extractors. And I think many of them believe that the lab has this little black box that you open a lid in, drop your favorite bud, close the lid, and then a couple minutes later, the answer pops out on a piece of paper. Um, I wish it were that simple, but it's not. It's really complicated. So let's go through the process. I think in many states, not all states, in many states, the laboratory is the organization or the entity that is required to sample the product. And what that means is that the cultivator can't show up to the lab with a bag of cannabis and say, please test this and give me a COA or a certificate of analysis. Please give me the results. And I think the the reason for that should be fairly apparent. If you allow the cultivator to pick what gets tested, they, of course, are going to pick their best. And when a laboratory goes in, they don't really know what is, what's happened. And so they're, they're going to arguably, they're going, or they should be selecting a true random sample. So somebody from the laboratory will get in the car, go to the cultivation facility. They'll be trained on how to pick samples properly. It's usually not off of a plant. They've usually been harvested and they're they're in totes or something like that. But to be able to go through the tote and randomly select a sufficient amount of product that meets all the legal requirements, because in many states, for instance, California, it's 0.5% of the harvest batch must be sent to the lab for testing. And so a person from the lab does all that work. There's a whole slew of compliance tracking that needs to be done. 
So all of the states measure how much how much cannabis has been moved from one facility to another facility. So there's a lot of electronic tracking that goes with all of this. And again, if you're on the cultivation, if you're in the industry, you understand the compliance requirements, but I, I don't think that many people, many of the consumers understand the amount of compliance activity that happens. A sample, after it is picked, goes through all the compliance work, is finally brought to the laboratory. Now, I just want to pause for a second. People regularly ask, Sean, why did you just spend three or four minutes on sampling? That's not a lab technique. And I completely disagree with that. So do most of the regulatory bodies. Because how you sample and the quality of your sampling activities has a direct influence on the result that you are going to get. So in addition to everything that I just talked about, laboratories are expected to have standard operating procedures for how to sample. All of the samplers are supposed to be trained on those, and they should actually be tested on that so that when they show up to a facility, they know what they're doing. Okay, so that's sampling. That's the first part. It comes into the laboratory, gets entered into a laboratory computer system. And in fact, if anybody has spent time in a clinical diagnostics laboratory, the processes are very, very similar. Samples receive a unique ID. They're entered into the computer system so that they know, so that we know what information is available about them. And then they're divided up in multiple different ways to undergo a variety of different tests. These tests don't all happen with one small black box. As it turns out, there's seven or eight boxes that are about three feet by two feet by three feet. <laughs> and they cost about $1.2 million to get all of those lined up. Once the sample has been divided and prepared so that it can be loaded onto the instruments, there's usually a team of scientists. These are people with chemistry degrees, biology degrees. Um, many of them will have uh, at, least, at least a bachelor's, frequently a master's, and most labs are going to have at least one person with a PhD. It's a, almost a regulatory requirement. Um, there's some wiggle room there, but it's not uncommon to find somebody with a PhD in a laboratory. And they will be responsible for ensuring that the instrument, the laboratory instrument, runs all of the tests and that the data that comes out on the other side is accurate and reliable. And what they're going to do when they get that data is check to see that a number of the controls that are added. So we basically take a, an aliquot of THC that, for instance, that has a known amount of THC in it. And we test that on just like along with all of the other samples. And when we're looking at the data on the back end, we want to be confident that there weren't any problems with sample preparation or running the instrument. And so the expectation is that that, that known sample of THC, let's just say we had it in it at 10%. The result on the back end should say, yes, there is 10% THC there. And that means that the data is accurate, reliable, believable, at which point, again, there's, some, there's some, a lot of math that gets done here. Fortunately, a lot of computer assistance these days, and all of that data then gets transferred onto a laboratory report or 
many people will refer to it as a certificate of analysis. And the certificate of analysis is the legal documentation. I would hope that it shows all of the tests that were performed. So if you test for 87 pesticides, I would like to see a list of 87 pesticides that are tested for. The result, i.e. none was detected or some was detected. And if any was detected, whether that is over or under the action limit that is set by a specific state. And all of that should be on a nice little small packet of paper. And that should follow the product everywhere it goes. And again, back to our conversation with QR codes, this is really where I think the the electronic transmission of data is going to be so very helpful because at the end of the day, if a laboratory runs a test but nobody reads the report, did it matter? It's a very good question. You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, somebody better be reading them. Well, and people do read them. Um, it's it's mostly the it's mostly the cultivators who want to be sure that they have the legal authority to sell their product, and also the the same can be said for retailers. But as a again, this is just me advocating for patient education. As a patient or as a consumer, I think that you should understand these reports just like a food label. It's not about how much THC is in there. That's very helpful information. Um, if, if, some, if something clocks in at 5% versus 25%, a knowledgeable consumer is going to say, well, I need to adjust my consumption rates because the concentration of an active molecule is higher in one and lower in the other. Again, that, that takes an educated consumer, but the same thing can be said for many of the other tests or many of the other analytes that are tested for. Now, generally, we're trying to screen out problems. If you test positive for a pesticide, even if it, is, even if it has an allowable amount, because some pesticides have allowable amounts, as, a, as an educated consumer, when I look at a certificate of analysis, if I see that there are pesticides, I will look for an alternative product. Again, it's met the legal requirements, but it hasn't met my personal requirements of being free from known contaminants. And is this something that you can tackle with your tribe of experts to uh, create some kind of, I don't know, translator, if you will, to be able to allow the layman to understand what they're looking for when they look at a certificate of analysis? You know, that's a great suggestion. Um, People have asked me on multiple occasions, when am I going to write a blue paper for the consumer? I've traditionally focused on laboratory, people that are interested in getting into the laboratory business or people that rely on laboratory services. But it's something that I, I, need, to, I need to carve out some time and create kind of like a, a consumer's guide to laboratory reports. Yeah, I think it'd be really helpful. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> so. it's, it's on my list of things to do. It's, uh, <laughs> these, so the blue papers that you mentioned... Thanks for reminding me. Um, for those that are for those that are listening, as an educator, I believe that there is a time for a 240 character tweet, a thousand character LinkedIn post, uh, and every once in a while, I really truly believe that the 
only way to convey information accurately is to sit down and write 20 pages. And most of my blue papers are about that long. They're researched, they have references in them, but the idea is not to overwhelm. They're meant for the casual reader, not for the scientists. The goal is to educate people. And I don't think you educate very well when you use big term, use big words and, and make things complicated to read. Uh, I, I certainly don't believe that they're dumbed down, but the idea is look at this from the perspective of the reader, not from the perspective of the educator. And so is that why you went with blue paper as opposed to a traditional white paper? Well, E4 Bioscience colors are blue. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, there is a, a blue paper is a, uh, it's considered a, a, a white paper that has a, a, a technical um, a technical interest. And since this is laboratory testing, which I think is technical, I think I chose the right terminology for these documents. Matches my color scheme. And it's a technical white paper. That's great. I appreciate that. I was yeah. I was curious about where you got the blue from. Yeah. And then just to just to kind of close the loop here, I was very fortunate last year to be invited by Springer Nature. They're an international publisher of textbooks. They asked if I would be the primary editor for a laboratory textbook because there aren't any textbooks available on cannabis laboratories. Clinical labs, yes. Environmental labs, yes. Okay, there's hundreds of textbooks on how to grow cannabis, hundreds of textbooks on how it influences your, um, your consciousness, but there are no textbooks on laboratories. So I've been able to pull together an incredibly talented team of, I can't write a textbook all by myself, but I've got a team of authors and some of these names are, they're just rock stars in the cannabis industry, really well, cannabis laboratory industry specifically, but really, really well known um, for high quality and, and credibility. So I'm extremely fortunate to have been able to pull this group of authors together and We'll have a 300-page textbook coming out at the end of this year about cannabis labs. And the idea is not to educate lab staff, but to educate legislators, educators, consumers. Again, as laboratory personnel, we don't need our own textbook. I think it's much more important that we have a reference book that educators, legislators, consumers politicians, they can read this information and, and understand what laboratories do. Of course, there'll be a few technical chapters, but it's not the goal. The goal is to educate the broader community about what happens in a lab. And I think that it, including in your list, cultivators and processors would be, it would be very, very critical for them to have this information as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, I view myself as a as an primarily as an educator, to be honest with you. And I think that different levels of of information have to be passed different ways. Some days it'll be a tweet, someday it's a LinkedIn post. Once a quarter, I try and push out a blue paper. And then once in a lifetime, because I'll only do this once, um, you get you you get the opportunity. It's an honor to write a textbook. Yeah. Very cool. So, yeah, really excited. Really excited. A lot of work. 
lot of work. And so well, you said that that's going to be released in the fourth quarter this year. So does that mean should you're... Be, yeah, it should be fourth quarter of 2020. So you're just about there with all the writing then. We have most of... We have final drafts of most of the chapters. And then there's about four or five months worth of editorial work at the publishing house. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I'm excited. So let's talk about what people tend to want to know most when they are going through a lab testing and it's you know, levels of CBD, levels of THC and things like that. So I, I'm going to butcher this term, but decarboxylation. <laughs> no, you did good. Okay. Um, decarbing or decarboxylation. Decarboxylation. And so this is the process where the acidic form of tetrahydrocannabinol or THC loses a chemical group that's attached to it. And again, we're, we're, we're geeking out here, okay? It, it loses a, a carboxyl group and it's converted from the acidic form into delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the active form. So what's, what's interesting is, is that THC in, in nature is gen- generally comes as, as in, a, in an acidic form, and that is not psychoactive. And that's what, what, what converts that or what decarboxylates is heat and also time. But I think heat is the primary factor involved in decarboxylation. And that is why most of the, if, if you look at the, the history of marijuana, excuse me, or cannabis consumption, it, it gets burned. You, you smoke it because the application of the flame converts THCA into THC and provides the medical and or conscious effects that, that occur. It's, it's a chemical process. That's all it is. It's just a chemical process. And by the way, the same thing is true for a number of the other cannabinoids. If people look at the biochemical pathways, there is a CBDA or an acidic version of CBD that can also be converted to CBD. And there's a lot of interest right now on CBV, and there is a CBVA or an acidic form of that. And how they are decarboxylated or converted, the levels of heat, there's some other, there's some other factors that that are that are a part of this. But it's a way to describe the chemical modification of a compound. And it's way too much analytical science for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it, it gets really complicated. Um, certainly, in, in I think in my hemp blue paper, I have a diagram of the biochemical pathways by which you go from a starting compound all the way to the ending compounds. And it reminded, it reminds me a little bit of biochemistry as a senior or a junior in college, where somebody's going to ask you a really hard question about it. (laughs) What's this process called and what are the requirements for the process? But at the end of the day, it's just decarboxylation is just modifying a compound slightly by changing the environment in which it's in. And in the case of THC, it's heat. It's heat. And what, what temperature is it that it needs to reach? Ooh, good question. I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head, okay. but it's a you know Fahrenheit 452, something that you know at least burning at least burning temperature. You know, interestingly, I I actually it's a very hard question to answer 
But there are a couple publications out there that have looked at the conversion of THCA to THCA in temperature. I don't think that there's a minimal temperature. And I say that because it happens spontaneously over time at room temperature. Hmm. So it can happen at room temperature. It can. It just takes time. And I think there'll be anecdotal stories of people saying, well, I found buds that I picked a year ago and I tried them and it wasn't the same. You know, they didn't seem as potent. Right. So right. Something, has, something has happened. And interestingly, there's once THCA is converted to THC, there is one more step in the way for the molecule to become truly inactivated and, and not, have any, not have any of its uh, known, known effects. So there's an extra step in there that can occur. But I, I think you can logically say that if we can make it to the end step at room temperature, somewhere along the way, we decarboxylated spontaneously. And just the rate of that, I'm not sure that we know that. It's, a lot of people haven't, that, that research is something that needs to be done. Curious about that, because you know, as a foolish, foolish teenager, I've tried eating buds before, and, <laughs> yeah. and of course, to no effect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's got to be above, what, 98.6, huh? Well, there's got to be, there's, there's, I know that there have been just a couple studies about this. I can't pull the, the images from my head, but uh, I, I know that it happens spontaneously, but heat is a catalyst and heat makes things happen faster. That's the, that's the word I've been looking for for the past two or three minutes. Heat is a catalyst. It's a catalyst, indeed. All right, so uh, another thing that struck me going through uh, this hemp blue paper of yours was the variables within technology themselves. And so the different machinery that different labs may utilize in order to do their testing can really make a huge difference in what kind of results you're getting around the product. I was hoping you could talk to that a little bit. And it's a great segue from our last conversation, actually, because there are a couple different kinds of instruments, and we're not going to geek out about the about the, the names of them. But at the end of the day, what is different between one and the other is whether the testing methodology uses heat or not. And so in the case of hemp, we're trying to get an accurate assessment of THC, THCA, CBD, and CBDA, if you apply heat, everything is going to get pushed into its neutral form, or delta-9 THC, or, or, or finally CBD. And from a grower's perspective, again, if we rewind the clock about six months, there was some before the um, establishment of a national domestic hemp program legislation was enacted. There was, I think, confusion in the regulations, and a number of hemp growers made the legal argument that THCA is not THC. Therefore, when a lab was testing strictly, because the requirements were, weren't really clear, the legal requirements weren't 100% clear what we needed to test for. But they just kept talking about delta nine THC, and a number of a number of hemp cultivators were saying, "Well, look, there may be THCA in here, but that's irrelevant from a legal perspective. You just want to know about THCA." So they were they were it was very important to them to not heat 
the hemp sample because the heat would catalyze the conversion of THCA to THC, and that could lead to a hot crop or a crop that exceeded the maximum allowable amount of THC, which is 0.3%. And so hemp growers in particular have always been very concerned about what kind of instrumentation is being used to assess the different cannabinoids in there because they do not want to see the conversion. Good news, the establishment of the domestic hemp program legislation that the federal government rolled out said, we don't care. We want to know what the total available THC level is, and we're pegging it at 0.3%. So at this point, I think there's less of a concern. I just think that people, um, that, that the cultivators want to know where they stand specifically for each of the ca- uh, cannabinoids. I think perhaps the end user may be less concerned about it, but I think the, the, the cultivators and the processors, they're data-driven people, and they really want to know where are we in the process. And some people could also claim, some people also believe, I think rightfully so, that um, if you're starting to see a transition from THCA to THC over time in your growth characteristics, that your batch is aging. It's very, very interesting. I think it's less of an issue now with the legislation that's been passed. I think uh, at, at the end of the day, from um, from a medical cannabis user, we don't know. Most of the benefits are perceived to be from Delta 9 THC, not the acidic form. I'd love to see some research that digs into that because I think that when we take start to take a look at terpenes, which is something we haven't talked about, but when we look at our terpenoids and our cannabinoids and blend them together in the right way, we're going to be able to start making medical claims that can be supported yes and that's the direction if, like any medicine this is going to go the big pharma model at some point and we're going to be able to have different sorts of uh admixtures if you will and combinations of these terpenes and cannabinoids in order to be able to target specific ailments and you know for better or worse this kind of regulation can be very helpful uh, from a medical standpoint. Uh, but at this point, we just don't know enough about the terpenoids. We don't know enough about the different cannabinoids. We're focused on two of, of over a hundred at this point. So, so, okay, let's enough about me jabbering away. Let's dive into the terpenoids. Do you test for those as well? Terpenes are not required for safety testing. They are a, they they impart quality to the project to the to the product i think so from a legisl- from a from a legal requirement no requirement to test for terpenes but i think as consumers become more educated and they start looking at the coas particularly when that's tied to known medical benefit and we're not quite there yet but when that happens People are going to be very interested in, in understanding what the terpene composition is. And I think these days, terpenes are probably, or, or terpenes are regularly appreciated by your adult rec user, where they'll go into a retail store and they will want to smell the products and say, you know, that, that's got a nice you know, lemon scent to it, or that has a grapefruit scent to it. Um, this this is spicier. 
And the terpenes are what contribute to those aromas. They can all be measured in the laboratory. And I would, I think that your bud tender these days is sort of like a sommelier that has been trained to recognize the different aromas that are part of any specific flower. I mean, extracts have, extracts have terp- terpenoids in them too. So they are able to, to explain to uh, a consumer what they are smelling. I think it's a bit of a stretch to say, and we know, and to follow up with, and this helps you sleep or, and this helps you focus because the data isn't really there for that yet. But in the long run, I I believe that that's going to be an enormous focus. I think big pharma is going to get involved as much as I respect and appreciate big pharma. I've worked with them before. I mean, I would hope that this isn't left solely to big pharma. I think that there's a lot of opportunities out there for other kinds of companies to participate. What, what will most likely happen, and it's, I, I may have heard it on your show, actually, where somebody was talking about the single molecule. The single molecule or the concentrate, it's very easy to understand what's in it. And it's very easy to understand what its effects are. It's, it's you know one variable. And you can test it on one indication. I think a flower is much more harder to characterize. The good news is that the the FDA has a pathway for botanical um, for botanicals. So, so if anybody's interested in in botanical regulations, the FDA has a fantastic guidance document on on new new botanical drugs. Um, so don't say that the FDA is not interested. It's just they have very high standards and, and, they're, and they're often difficult to meet. But they got a great guidance paper on it for flowers. But big pharma will probably start with single molecule. And why should that not surprise us? Because look at Marinol, Drobinol, that's what they are. They're single molecule compounds in an oil that are come in a, come in a capsule and they're very easy to measure. They're very easy to understand. And we know that from clinical trials, and people don't like that word because that's time and money, but we know that they're very, very good as single molecules for increasing appetite, particularly in patients that are have had chemotherapy. And I think that that's the route that big pharma will likely go to begin with. It's 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 not it's not this big conspiracy theory that big pharma doesn't want flour out there. It's just the requirements to get a a medical drug approved by the FDA across the finish line. It's really expensive. It's really difficult, and it takes a long time. And so. These co- the companies want to minimize the the variables in that process, and flowers are just much more variable than a single uh, a single molecule concentrate. Yeah, incredibly variable. Yeah, I mean <laughs> Even, that's what makes them so neat. Exactly, because they're different, right? Exactly. I mean, you can you can grab a bud from two different areas of the plant, and they'll test differently. It's really true. Yeah, absolutely. And, by the way, that's a that's a that's a long circle back to sampling, where w- that's why random sampling is so incredibly important. 
because something that's exposed to at the very, very top of the canopy with all the light versus a bud that's in the bottom of the canopy and very young, you are absolutely right. They're going to have very different THC concentrations. And I think a, a lot of cultivators find that can be challenged by that when they see their results. Yes. Yeah. Because they tend to look at the top of the plant, but the sampler has taken if they've done it properly, something from all of the plant. Right. Well, if they're an exceptional cultivator, they're going to get excited by that instead of <laughs> frustrated by it. True. Because it just it creates creates new and unique ways of uh, of growing techniques. You know. So. Absolutely, I agree that there's a lot of opportunities there. The great thing about testing is, it's not something to be afraid of. Once you have the data in your hands, you can start making informed decisions. From a consumer, do I buy or not buy? What works for me? What doesn't work for me? Um, do I prefer a high CBD or a low CBD? From a cultivator's perspective, it's a different kind of, it's a different set of questions that you get to ask. But if you know that lower canopy buds are going to be different, are there different lighting opportunities, right? Right. And, and there, we... there certainly are. Get Absolutely. That. I lived Absolutely. in Sonoma County for a long time, Sonoma County, California, and uh, you know it's wine country. And you can see that these wine growers have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and they've figured out ways to trellis these plants so that they have pretty much the same amount of sun hitting every part of the plant. And it's like, wow, well, can we do that with cannabis? Of course we can. So now all of a sudden, these low branches are getting the same amount of sun as the upper branches, and it creates a more of an equilibrium across the process. So anyway, I'm gonna, I want to uh, segue just a little bit. I want not segue, but wrap back around to the terpene testing. So at this point, is it more of a luxury? And as, as a lab tester, are you finding that people are starting to be more curious about their, the terpene contents and asking for that specifically to be done in the testing? I think that, so that's a great question. Um, it is, I don't know any state that has required terpene identification and quantitation. So that puts it as a luxury. Now, that being said, I think that there is an interest certainly in the breeders to understand exactly what they are breeding. And so the breeders, and, and if the breeders are interested in it, well, then the cultivators tend to be interested in it as well. So the breeders and cultivators, I think, are asking for this as an add-on because from a business perspective, we can track what's selling. And if you can track the products that are selling well and tie that back to something, to a property about them that you have measured and know, it allows you to go back and create more of that product or to improve on that product. So I think cultivators and breeders are beginning to ask for this more and more. And I also think that sooner or later, or it's happening. It's happening. Consumers are no longer just asking for the glass jar to be open so that they can take a smell. I think an informed consumer now goes into the to the retail store and says, I would like to see the COA. Oh, by the way, do you know if terpene testing has been done? Because as a consumer, I, I like linoline and I want a product that I can I know has this much linoline in it. Again, I think we're going to get there. It's just a matter of time. It's 
it's a lot like uh, it's a lot like craft beer. I'm an IPA person, but I don't really like a new uh, a New England. Or I shouldn't say that. I much prefer an American West Coast IPA to a New England IPA, and the reason of the reason is strictly because of the hops selection. I know that I am a Cascade hops guy. Fuggles, which is what you'll find typically in a New England, is it's not my favorite hops. So if somebody tells me I've got a couple IPAs, the first question is, do you know if it's New England or or, or West Coast? If they can, if they can't answer that, I often say, do you know what kind of hops are used in those different brews? Because if they say, well, this one uses Fuggles, I'll me personally, I'll generally pick the other one. But that's me as a kind of an educated craft brew consumer. What's interesting though is that most of my friends are that way now too. Yeah, and it's it's come a long way. <laughs> it has. And I think the same thing is going to ring true with cannabis. People are going to be they they will want to know what is in the product before they purchase it. I completely and, agree. And it's funny when before you started talking about IPAs, that was the first thing that popped into my mind was I was thinking about this craze, the hazy IPA craze that's yeah. happening right now. And so that's very much something that could happen. You know, so uh, everybody starts going into the dispensary wanting pinene terpenes, and that's their favorite. And all of a sudden, all the cultivators start realizing, oh, everybody wants the pinene. We got to start growing more Jack Herrera or whatever. And so, and then that starts to dominate the marketplace. It's really fascinating how it all plays out. Yeah. And from a cultivator perspective, they can only get that kind of information through lab testing. Uh, or they can only get that kind of quantitative information through lab testing. I think a good cultivator, a good breeder, they're they're like a sommelier. They're going to be able to, they will know what these aromas are. From an organizational perspective, I think it's good to have all of that information. Specifically, again, thinking as a business person here, if you can track that back to consumption, and if you where if you talk to your customers, which everybody should do, and ask, what do you like? What's Why do you like this particular product? And I think for many marijuana strains, the terpenes are a big part of that. And to be able to go back and say, okay, we're getting great customer feedback for this specific terpene profile. How can we stabilize that strain? Is there anything that we can do to improve on this? Um, but you now have a baseline. And again, that's going to come, I think, from lab testing. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Well, Sean, this is, it's been incredibly informative. We got a little geeky, which I was really excited to do with you. And I was just wondering, is there any other direction you'd like to go? Anything that we didn't cover that you really want to make sure the listeners hear about? I think that we are pretty close to propping up on the end of an hour so it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed having this. Um, is there is there anything that I can answer for you? Because this is your show. Well, I have the one last question I'd like to ask all my guests. And that is, if you could see one thing change within the medical cannabis industry, what would that change be? So having listened to your podcasts previously, I was expecting this question. <laughs> and I am going to answer it twice because I need to answer it from a legal perspective and from a consumer perspective. Without any doubt, I think I'm going to follow in the footsteps of many of my highly esteemed predecessors in this show. 
if the federal government would come in and provide consistent, uniform direction, I think we'd all be in a better place. So that's from a legal perspective. We really need federal government involvement. But from a consumer perspective, if there were one thing that I would want a consumer to take away from this show, it's to ask for a certificate of analysis and to, and to try and understand it. And if you don't, heckle your bud tender. They should understand this information. And so what I'm asking for then is consumer education. If you have smart regulation and educated consumers, I think those are the two things that we really, really need. Completely agree. Completely agree. And uh, I would actually throw into there the physician within the loop and having the physician be educated on all of the COA as well so that they can better guide the patient because there's always so much that a patient may or may not want to know about, you know, so the doctors right. are supposed to be the experts so that they should know about this stuff too. Yeah. So the, the, the physicians though, I know we're going a little, we're supposed to be closing up here, but the problems that the physicians are handcuffed a little bit because there's not enough research to be able to say for them to look at a COA and say, well, if you want to be able to sleep better, here are the mixtures of cannabinoids and terpenes that really are known to work for sleep. And I think we're going to get there, but it's going to take a little bit of time. And that's when, once the data becomes available, the physicians are going to come in 100%. They're trying, they're trying. They're trying, yeah. And that leads back to, to your first point is that federal regulation or deregulation or whatever it might be, the course of action that needs to be taken where we can actually have great great research done to know these things. Absolutely. Oh, so I know we're supposed to wrap up, but I'm curious, is that a direction that you'd like to go into with the lab testing? Is uh, research around specific chemicals and, and providing products through your lab to re clinical trials and things like that? I think it's necessary for the best labs to do that. If you look at any anybody who is considered an innovator, they have always been the ones that have invested in R and D. Great answer. Pick your in, pick your industry. Innovators do R and D. If you, if you're just a service provider, you'll never be an innovator. So true. So, so true. of course, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it's it's hard work. It's hard work. It's time, money, effort, all that kind of rolled. It's ex, It's a commitment. But it's a great time to, it's always a great time to be an innovator. Definitely. And you don't strike me as the type to be allergic to hard work. No. As I said, I think I told you I'm a recovering type A. Yeah. But, <laughs> <Right>. but recovering. Recovering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> recovering. <laughs> it's a long path to recovery. Long path to recovery. You got it. <laughs> I call myself a recovering academic and I still can't help myself but geek out sometimes. <laughs> Uh, that's why the show is so good. <laughs> well, Sean, thank you so much for your time and all your information. I really appreciate it. Is there a direction you'd like to send the listeners to find out more about you? Oh, thanks so much for asking. Yeah. So I always encourage people to check out my website. And that's www.e4, the number four, bioscience.com. Feel free to ping me on LinkedIn. So that's Sean Opie, um, Cannabis Laboratory Expert. And I, I love to talk to people. I believe that the world is founded on relationships. 
100% agree. And I'll put that in the show notes too so everyone can find you easily that way. And just thank you so much and uh, we'll talk again. All right. Sounds good. Take care, Matthew. Thank you. You too. There you have it, folks. Dr. Sean Opie really brought the goods. We got deep into the details of what it takes to actually test the cannabis. And this is so important because this is how we know that as patients, we are receiving the highest quality medicine possible. These lab testers are really, they're kind of the unsung heroes of the medical cannabis industry, but they're the ones that are making sure that we have the highest quality medicine possible. I'm incredibly grateful to Dr. Opie for taking the time to explain all this to me, to share it all with you, and hopefully you learned a lot as well. Let me know how much you learned. Go over to Apple or Stitcher or Google or Spotify or wherever and leave me a review. Let me know what you think of the show and how we're doing, and I'm going to keep bringing you great, great talent and innovators like Dr. Opie. Until next time, my friends, please stay healthy. Please take care of each other. It's strange out there, but try to have some fun. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.